This is the Adopted Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. Season two, episode two. I'm Alex Fitton, your host, and today we're going to sit down with Melissa Fink. Melissa is an elementary school principal, and she's also a foster parent. So while she's not adopted, she totally understands that world and some of the difficulties that we can face when mixing kids from hard places and a traditional education system. So she and I got to sit down and talk about educational resources for your kids from hard places and how to work with teachers and administrators to get your child caught up in their education. In addition to that, I wanted to plug something that's coming up. And this is, if you're local, I have some more specific information, but if you're not local, you can still totally participate. So the Empowered to Connect simulcast is coming up on April 13th and 14th. And if you're local to Northwest Arkansas or anywhere remotely close to Northwest Arkansas, you're going to want to sign up to watch it at the Grove Church in Fayetteville. I'm totally biased because that is where I attend. And this year we get to host it. Um, If you're not local, then you should find a church near you that is also simulcasting it. So... It is a conference for foster and adoptive families and anyone supporting kids from hard places. You're going to get to learn about brain development in kids, how healthy attachment and relationships can heal their brains, and other super practical strategies for dealing with difficult behaviors. The cost is $25. It includes lunch for both days and your tickets, and it's taught by researchers from TCU who developed trust-based relational intervention, and that's also where the book The Connected Child, which we talk about on this podcast all the time. That's where that came from. So you can sign up on the link just by searching it, or you can email Rachel Kirksey, and that's Rachel spelled the normal way, dot Kirksey, K-I-R-K-S-E-Y at gmail.com. If you're local, she can get you tickets to go to the Grove. If you're not local, I'm sure she could point you in the direction of a church near you who's hosting it. But you're definitely going to want to be a part of that. That's a great resource for any kinds of difficulties or struggles that you have with your adopted kids. So on that note, let's jump into our interview with Miss Melissa Fink. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I am so excited to bring you this episode. I have had it mulling around in my head since we struggled with this, like for the very first time. And so I'm super excited to be able to talk to such an expert here. And we have a little bit of a connection because if you remember back in season one, when we interviewed Kathleen Barnes, she totally works with this amazing woman that I'm about to introduce you you to. So hi, Melissa. How's it going? It's going good. How are you? Um, I'm pretty good. Um, so yeah, tell us about, about what you do and your family and everything. Well, my name is Melissa Fink, and I am a native of Springdale, Arkansas. I am the principal at Jones Elementary in Springdale. Our school is about 98% poverty, um, about 75 to 80% English language learner. I'm married to Dwayne, and I have two children, Lauren, she's 15, and I have Ashlyn Grace, she is seven, and we currently are fostering a 10-year-old girl with autism. Wow. That's so did you guys open as a therapeutic home or was that kind of a surprise? No, uh, we actually opened um, just because I have seen such a need. Um, you know, 
being in a school that has high poverty, occasionally we do have kids that go into care and sometimes it can be a very frustrating experience. And so um, we decided that we wanted to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And so we actually opened provisionally last year wow. to take in one of our students. That's that's amazing. So yeah, I just didn't know because I know that a lot of people, and we can get into this a little bit more when we talk about your story of how you jumped into the foster care thing. But uh, it always fascinates me how people end up with kids with disabilities if they mm-hmm. if they opted to do that or if it was kind of a, a surprise. So well, it was most definitely a surprise. We um, got a phone call from DHS last week that they had a girl that needed a placement and picked her up and happened to know her principal really well. And so was able to call and talk to her and found out at that time that um, she has autism. So she's actually been a big blessing to our family. We've really enjoyed having her and it's been fun for my family to get to experience um, having a child with special needs um, because they don't get to interact with children like that very often. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, that just, shoots your credibility for this episode through the absolute <laughs> roof. So I'm so thrilled to be to have you on the show. Um, but I really before we jump into all of that fun education and adoption stuff, <laughs> I want to hear yeah, a little bit more about how you guys decided to do foster care. And I know that, you know, as a principal, it's really like you have 1000 children. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're like, yeah, what's what's a few more? <laughs> Yeah, we um, actually had been working with a family in my school that um, found themselves homeless and they were living in our parking lot of our school. And so, you know, we did as much as we could help them to get them back up on their feet. But the family wasn't able to maintain um, residency and ended up homeless again. And so their children were taken into custody and they had five children. And the worker, the resource worker on the case called me and asked if I knew of anyone in the school that could take them provisionally because they were having a hard time placing them. And so I was telling my husband um, about that story. And, you know, he said, well, we, we could probably help with one or two. And so we opened up our home and took in um, one of the little boys. And then my next door neighbors actually took in his older siblings And then I became really good friends with the younger two siblings, um, foster mom. And so between the three foster families that have these children, you know, we were all able to kind of co-parent them and and help support the parents as much as we could to, you know, try to get that reunification to happen quickly. Oh, that's so awesome. So, okay, that's how you jumped into it. But then what (laughs) happened after that? Because you obviously stuck around. I did stick around. So after that. Um, we were taking a little break and saw on the call Facebook page that there were two little boys that were sleeping in the DHS office and they had just asked for a family to open up their home for one night so that the children could have a place to come and have a hot shower and a hot meal. And so my husband and I talked about it and decided that we probably could do that. And so these two boys entered our home and Uh, We instantly fell in love with them and, you know, kept them for a few months. And then they left. And then um, I actually got their little sister. She was taken into custody. And it was really ironic because they had never met their little sister. The caseworker knew they were related, but they didn't know. Wow. And so I got their little sister. She was three years old. And she um, stayed with us a few months until they could... um, place her provisionally with an older brother and his wife. And then we took a break from her and then took this little girl that we have living in our home now. Wow. So, I mean, no big deal. Just, you know, (laughs) 
lots of action going on at your house. And how, so you have two biological daughters, right? Is that what you said? Yes, two biological children. I and do. have mm-hmm. they loved this process or has it taken some getting used to? Well, you know, um, I think what it's taught my children is to have empathy um, for children who are a lot less fortunate than they are. And, and I'm not going to lie, you know, my youngest daughter has struggled a little bit with it. Because when you have a 15-year-old and a 7-year-old, it's like you have two only children. Um, but I think it's been good for Ashley and Grace to really, you know, get to experience this and um, and understand, you know, how fortunate she is to, to live the life that she lives. And um, it's been fun watching, especially with this current placement, watching this really neat relationship grow between her and this the foster daughter that I currently have. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So do you think that you will stick with it for a while? Do you see adoption in your future or what What do you see happening with this? Um, we um, have not ruled out adopting. And my husband and I, my husband is 47 and I'm 42. So um, we would never say we would never adopt. But I think that we really are in this, um, you know, just to try to help um, kids, um, you know, in a tight spot and then maybe kind of be that bridge between, you know, their reality and foster care to an adoptive home. It's kind of the role I see in this, um, and supporting families as much as we can when reunification is a possibility. Absolutely. And I think that that's a good Testament because a lot of the, um, you know, I hate to use the word excuse, but that, you know, let's call it what it is. But a lot of the excuses that people offer of why they don't do foster care is they're afraid that they're going to get attached. And, you know, we know as foster parents that sometimes you don't get attached and sometimes <laughs> you're you're OK with them going back home. Um, but it's great that you are like, yes, here I am. I'm there to take that role. Um you just don't see that a lot. See people saying mm-hmm. I'm volunteering to have my heart broken and to support these people in the gaps and not just go toward foster or go toward adoption. Yeah. And I think the super cool thing is um, through this process, we've been able to keep in touch with our foster children. And so um, actually with, with a little boy that I um, had placed in my home provisionally, um, I, you know, his parents still text me. They still call me. Um, they they reach out to the other foster moms as well. And so um, if, you know, if I wanted to see him or talk to him, he's a phone call away. And then the same thing with the two little boys that we had in our home. Um, one of them has been placed into an adoptive home. And I think pre-adoption is happening right now for him. And he calls me almost every night. And so wow. I still get to talk to him. And then the little girl um, that I had, she's with biological or her biological half-brother and his wife, and they are wonderful people and have been able to keep, you know, contact with them as well. And so I'm hopeful that when reunification happens with the girl I currently have in my home, that there will be a relationship that's built between me and her mom and that I can still see and talk to her Yeah, and help support, you know, as much as I can. So do any of these kids still go to your school, even though they're not in your home anymore? No, none of them still go to my school. They all have moved on. You know, I imagine that that was kind of cool for them at the time, though. Like, I could just stay at the principal's house. So yeah, for sure. Get out of detention free card for life. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Although, you know, not to say that you're that you're that lenient. I'm sure you're (laughs) I'm sure you've got everything under control there. So speaking of you being a principal, so you, how long have you been the principal at that school? Is that the only school you've, you've been at? 
Um, I started teaching at Parson Hills back in 1999, and in 2004, I transferred to Jones Elementary School as the assistant principal. And then in 2007, I was named the principal of that school, and I've been there ever since. Wow. So that's a while. That's awesome. That's over 10 years. Yes. Ah, that's amazing. Good job. So on that note, so you've seen a lot of this stuff. And as a foster parent, you have a unique, um, you have a unique perspective on the services that these kids need. And I'm sure, I mean, these are Mm -hmm. services that every kid needs, not just adoptive kids, but we, we know as adoptive and foster parents that these kids almost always need some kind of service. And a lot of times we don't know what that is. And that's, I mean, that was exactly my story. You know, I, Mm -hmm. my, my, teenage son moved in with us at 14. I had no idea. I mean, I had no children in school. So mm-hmm. my first experience with public school was a high school that I had never been to. And I was, I was actually mistaken as a student and got in trouble for not being where I was supposed to be. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I was like, no, no, I'm here. I'm a parent. And, um, but I had no idea even what a 504 or IEP or anything like these, you know, these words, I had no idea what that meant. So mm-hmm. I was hoping that you could talk to us about those services and um, and how we can help our kids get the best education that they can. So sure. Um, so first of all, what what are just an, what's an overview of some of these things that we can that we can look for or maybe some of the words that we need to know what they mean? Right. So we'll start talking about special education. Um, I think that's typically kind of a hot topic for um, foster families and their children. And really what special education does is it offers an individual education, individualized education plan, which is the acronym is, is IEP. And through the IEP, um, if children qualify for special education services, it can offer a variety of things to children, um, which may include resource services, speech language services, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and um, counseling services, um, as well as visual aids. If it's a child that has visual impairment or um, hearing device or hearing aids and hearing support, if it's a child that has a hearing impairment. And I think the thing that's important to remember for children who um, receive special education is that all disabilities um, through public school have to have a negative impact on their academic learning in the classroom. So just because a child um, is having a hard time maybe tying shoes or um, maybe doesn't, um, maybe requires some physical therapy outside of the school day, for them to receive it inside of the school day, it has to have an adverse effect on their performance in class. So a child who's having problems grasping a pencil and is having a difficulty writing and having legible writing that teachers can read, that might be a child that qualifies for occupational therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, a student that, you know, has um, an impairment and is not able to walk um, or requires assistive, assistive devices to walk, that would be something that a child would receive physical therapy for in school. So, um, you know, when we're talking about private therapy versus public school therapies, um, private therapies are a lot easier to get your children into because Mm -hmm. they don't have the um, strict rules and the least restrictive environment rules that public school special education has. And so anytime we're looking at 
writing an IEP for a child, um, whether it be for speech impairment, occupational therapy services, they have to prove that it's having an adverse effect on their academic performance. Okay. That's no, um, that's, that's good to know. Yeah. Anybody in, um, can request a referral conference for special education. Anybody can make that request, foster parent included. And once that request has been made, then a referral conference is scheduled. But I think what people have to keep in mind is just because there is a referral conference that's been scheduled, there that doesn't automatically mean that there's going to be special education testing. Um, through the laws with special education, there are a lot of things that have to be put in place before we begin the testing process to see if there is a disability. And it's called response to intervention. And what response to intervention is, is that we need to make sure as educators that we're doing everything possible in the school setting to close the achievement gap for that student. And so a lot of times we're talking about, you might hear the words tier one intervention, tier two intervention versus a tier three intervention. And basically what that means is at the lower level of intervention at that tier one, um, we have to make sure that the teacher is doing everything in the classroom um, in, you know, in order to support that child. A tier two intervention is going a little bit above and beyond what every child is getting in the classroom. So the teacher may be pulling that child back for small group instruction. She may be trying some different teaching techniques to see if that's having a positive impact on their learning versus a tier three intervention, which means that we're bringing experts in um, from maybe from within our buildings or we're bringing them in from, you know, in our districts to provide more one-on-one instruction with a child before we make a um, referral into special education and do the testing. So just because a parent wants testing to be done doesn't necessarily mean that at that conference, that's the decision that's going to be made. Okay. So what are some of the, what are some of the things that we should look for in our children that to, to even request this? Well, I think if there is a concern, um, you know, either academically or behaviorally with a child, um, it's, it's always okay to go in and request a meeting with the teacher just to see um, if what you're seeing in the home is matching up with what the teacher is seeing in the classroom. And an intervention can even be done um, without a special education referral. So um, parent or foster parents can, um, you know, go in and, and ask, you know, my child's not performing academically in the classroom. They're behind grade level. What are some things that you're doing as a teacher? Or what are some things that you're doing as a school in order to help, you know, fill those gaps in my child's learning? And then from that, um, it may you may decide to, um, you know, go into a referral conference and a committee will be convened. And the committee usually is com- composed of foster parent, um, a surrogate parent um, will be invited to the conference. Um, DHS is appropriate. Um, they might invite the resource teacher, the special ed designee. They might invite classroom or the classroom teacher will be there as well. And so the committee can be a very large committee, depending on how involved this this student is, or it could be a very small committee. 
and everybody is, um, you know, talking about the child and, um, you know, what needs to be done for the child. And then the decision is made from there if we're going to go into intervention or to a, a, an evaluation. Okay. So let's say that, you know, we're past all that. Your, your child is going to need special education services. So what does that mm-hmm. look like from there? Well, it depends on um, what kind of diagnosis the child leaves with. So, so what's the gamut con- there? What's like the least, you know, the least interaction mm-hmm. or the or the least impaction? I don't know why I can't talk tonight. <laughs> <laughs> the least impactful and the most. Well, um, I think we can start just by talking about the different diagnoses that kids have. Um, it can range anywhere from a speech language impairment to a specific learning disability to um, other health impairment to autism to emotionally disturbed to intellectual disability. Um, so just depending on what the data is showing through the evaluation. So a child with a speech impairment, again, thinking in your head, if a child, um, you know, has a hard time saying his or her R's, but they're doing really well in school and it's not having a negative impact um, on their performance, they're probably not going to qualify for speech language services in school. However, that would be an appropriate thing to take to a private therapist and say, um, you know, they're having problems with their R's and the private therapist would get them in. Right. So typically in school for speech language services um, children are getting served for expressive receptive disorders And that is, you know, receptive. I give a a child direction and I'm giving directions in the classroom and those directions are going in their ear, but they're getting stuck in their brain and they're not able to process what has been told to them. And so that is a receptive um, language impairment. Or sometimes the child's brain will have a thought and it from the brain to the mouth has a hard time coming out of the mouth. They're having a hard time expressing um, what what their what their brain is telling them to say, then that's an expressive language um, impairment. So the, typically, you know, children who um, are in foster care because of the traumas that they've experienced or um, the chemicals that the parents expose the fetus to in utero will cause, you know, those kind of impairments. Um, a specific learning disability exists when there is a gap between a child's IQ. What their, what their capabilities are cognitively, and when there is a gap between that and how they're performing academically. So, for instance, an average IQ is 85 to 115. And if they come up with an IQ of, let's just pretend, 92, and in reading they, they get a score of a 68, there is a significant gap between their ability level, their cognitive ability level, and how they're performing academically. So if that gap exists, then that could be a specific learning disability that they could qualify for. And just depending on how severe of a learning disability they have, the committee will meet and talk about, you know, minutes on an IEP and how much service the the child needs in order to help them be successful in school. And then um, intellectual disability is when your cognitive ability um, is extremely low. So usually when your IQ falls below 70, if there are some adaptive behaviors that go with it and what adaptive behaviors are, are, um, you know, 
things that teachers are noticing in classrooms or things that parents are noticing at home that typical children don't behave that way, mm-hmm. that will will sometimes qualify a, a child as having an intellectual disability. And then you have your autism diagnosis, which are a lot more involved and include a lot of testing and observation as well as when you're qualifying a child for an emotional disturbance too. Or I mean, and so, Down syndrome or something like that, right? Yeah, Down syndrome would probably, could probably um, have a multiple disability diagnosis depending on um, IQ level and, um, you know, other health impairments. So, so sometimes children um, have more than one disability and they can qualify in a category called multiple disabilities. Okay. And I know that sometimes, you know, especially like in special education classes, you'll have lots of disabilities in one class, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So Correct. what does that class look like? Well, it depends. Um, so children, when you're, when you're qualifying children into special education, there is a continuum of services that can be provided. Um, anywhere from indirect services, meaning that the special education teacher is just checking in on the child regularly okay. to see how they're performing in class. That's your least restrictive environment. And they would be mainstream, the, right? They would be mainstreamed in the regular education setting. Um, kind of a step down from that would be um, inclusion or co-teaching. And that's where the special education teacher is actually pushing into the classroom. And they are providing special education services in the mainstream classroom along the general education teacher. And then in between those two services, um, you go to the other side of the spectrum where they're in a special education classroom all day long. And those are your children that typically are more involved, your nonverbal children or children who um, cannot function in a regular classroom because of their cognitive ability or because of um, health impairments that they have that keep them from accessing um, the general education environment. So that is at the other end of the spectrum. And then you have everything in between um, where it's just, you know, you could have pull-out services where the special education teacher pulls the child out of classroom for a certain amount of time each day and provides them services in the areas where they've had, where they have identified gaps. So it's a continuum of services. So it can be anywhere from child stays in the general education classroom all day to, um, you know, being pulled just minimal part of the day all the way to, um, you know, they're, they're in a special education classroom all day in different districts call their classrooms, different things, but, um, you know, it could be a one to six. Sometimes children with really significant needs will be in a classroom where it's just one teacher and six special needs children with AIDS. And like I said, those typically are your nonverbal, nonmobile children who oftentimes require feeding assistance, feeding tubes, um, have diaper changes, aren't um, bathroom trained children to, you know, being in the mainstream. So there's a whole continuum of services that children can get when they're in special education. So that, I mean, all of that sounds amazing. And I think that for, for, I mean, speaking from experience for people like me, this, this, I feel like I should know these things, but I don't. And so if I'm a foster parent or an adoptive parent, say I've just adopted a child from overseas internationally, and I don't know what their education history looks like. I don't know where they need Mm -hmm. to be placed. Let's start from the beginning. Who do I even talk to? Um, 
when you enroll that child into school, I would definitely um, just request a meeting right off the bat to see, um, you know, what options you have for the child and you could share your concerns with the child. You know, our goal in education is to never, we don't want children in special education. We want them in their least restrictive environment as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So it might be that that we try that child out um, in a regular classroom setting just to gather some data and do some observations to see, you know, where are their gaps and, are there things that we could be doing outside of special education to, you know, help that child be successful in school? So I would definitely, you know, if you have concerns about a child that you're bringing into the educational system and you just don't have a lot of information about them, I think the first thing to do is, you know, notify the building principal that, you know, you you might have some concerns about them academically, um, but you don't know a lot about them. And um, that way we know exactly what kind of data we need to be gathering and what we need to be watching for. That's so awesome. And so I think that there's a level of, of intimidation that comes from just knowing who to talk to and, and what mm-hmm. questions are stupid. And <laughs> Well, um, there are no stupid questions. A stupid question is one that's not asked. And I, I don't know of any principal that would be upset with a parent for coming in and wanting to be involved in their child's education and wanting, you know, the best for their child and, and really wanting to partner with the school because, you know, as, as, as a principal, I love it when I have a parent that comes in and says, Hey, you know, I want to work with you. Here are my concerns. What can, what can we do together to help this child? That's the best scenario for any child in, in school is when you can have parents and educators walking alongside together, supporting the child. Yeah, that's so awesome. So let's let's jump to just a different form. So I know that you are in elementary education, but I'm sure you have a good understanding of secondary education. So what what about holding a child back? And I know that that's typically recommended against in secondary education, but sometimes it's necessary. So what what all goes into that? And what what will what will things have to come to to that to get to that point? Well, um, I will tell you that there is research that shows that any kind of retention has a very negative effect on a child, um, both academically and socially. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of research out there that supports retention of students. Right. Um, so I know, you know, at the elementary level, um, unless there's just really a big, huge reason why a child needs to be retained, You know, a lot of the questions we have to ask ourselves is if we retain this child for a year, is it really going to make a difference? And if the answer to that is yes, then we sit down and we develop a plan with the parent what that's going to look like. But what does that yes look like? Um, So some of the reasons why we would retain a child is if they do have a supportive parent in the home, if it's a situation where parents aren't supporting Um, If it's a situation that, you know, the parents are just not getting the child to school every day, those things aren't going to change for that child. And so, you know, another year in second grade is not going to fix the problem that um, that they have. But if it's a a parent that, um, you know, sometimes we get kindergartners that start kindergarten um, and they were like very close to that cutoff date for entrance into kindergarten Parents um, sometimes will want to retain the child and the teacher might decide that they want to retain the child because another year they would mature more. And so that would be a yes. Okay. So, you know, meeting with a parent, having conversations with a parent, you know, this is what we're seeing as educational professionals. Um, This is our recommendation. What do you think? 
And if we do do this, you know, how is this going to impact you? Because what we have to remember, especially at elementary, is the decisions that we make when they're young affect them for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about a child who's hitting puberty, um, they're going to hit puberty a lot sooner than their peers are going to hit it when they get older. Um, They're also going to be, you know, able to drive. And and sometimes, um, you know, kids, we definitely don't want to retain more than one year because then they're not eligible for things like sports and because of all these rules and regulations about how old children can be and play sports when they get to high school. Right. I know. I know at the secondary level that they have all kinds of opportunities for children to recover credits, to, um, you know, do Saturday schools, night schools. Um, a lot of times there are alternative placements for children, like alternative high schools for them to go so they can have a different high school experience. So the goal for, you know, when they get to secondary school is they don't want to retain them either. Right. They're giving them every opportunity that they can give them. Um, you know, so they can get caught up to their peers so they can graduate on time. And so my advice to a foster parent is, is really get into the school, (coughs) talk to um, the principals, talk to the school counselors and find out, you know, what, what kind of programs and services do they have in place so that we're not having to talk about retaining a child. And, and I know a lot of high schools provide, you know, early morning and in, in the evening tutoring sessions too to help children recover credit. Right. And I, I mean, that's, that's wonderful. It's just the reason I'm asking is unfortunately mm-hmm. as adoptive parents and as foster parents, we run into situations where these kids have just been passed along and exactly. they, they don't, they're not prepared to graduate high school or they mm-hmm. have no idea, you know, what they're doing in the class, but they've just been given second chances and they refuse to participate in these after school activities mm-hmm. or these before school. And, and so, you know, unfortunately we do get to that point sometimes. And mm-hmm. I know that it is, uh, it takes an act of Congress to get a secondary child held back. So I just didn't know if you had anything yeah. to say about that. Yeah. And, and really just try to, you know, uh, and I can just speak for Springdale. We have such an amazing, um, it's called ALEs, the Archer Learning Center. It's our, uh, it's, it's a, just a different way for kids to do high school. And so if they're not being successful in the traditional high school setting, then, you know, maybe an alternative placement would be the best thing for them. And I know virtual school too is becoming um, a very popular thing that children can can actually finish school and get caught up with their credits online even. So yeah. I think that the services that we have to offer now um, are so much better than what they were five, 10 years ago. Um, it You know, if, if, if kids are willing, you know, to give it a shot and foster parents are willing to help and support, um, I think that there's so many more um, opportunities for children to be successful than what what they used to have at secondary level. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's so encouraging to hear because like I said, as a, as a mom who had no clue about the educational system and mm-hmm. was just kind of thrown into it, you just don't know these things. You don't know what's available or how to ask for it or who to ask for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's encouraging just to know that a, there are options and B to hear it from someone who can say this, ex- these exactly are the options and here's who to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, it, oh, go ahead. You know, sometimes if you're having a hard time navigating the system or you feel like you're not getting the answers that you want, you know, I do encourage parents to reach out and try to find um, an advocate to kind of help circumvent this complex system that 
we live in, in the educational world. Um, so Arkansas Support Network it is, they're great. I mean, I, I, I like it when they come because I know they're there to help support the family. So if foster parents are having a hard time understanding or they don't, they're not getting the results that they think they should be getting, you know, reach out to an advocate because they know the law inside and out and they'll be there, you know, to kind of help, um, help you navigate our complex world because yeah, yeah it's not always easy. And that was Arkansas Support Network? Arkansas Support Network, yes. And do you know anything else about around surrounding states or just other states in the country that have similar programs? I don't. I sure don't. But I'm sure that, you know, someone could Google something. I, I'm sure Absolutely. that this is replicated <laughs> in other states. <laughs> For sure, yes. That's so awesome. So, okay, so let's jump over from the special education talk to just mm-hmm. some general issues that we, we have with our kids going to school and how, how – our kids teachers can help. So, you know, we call these things invisible disabilities. They're just, you know, behavior issues or Mm -hmm. things that, you know, the teacher needs to know about specific traumas and things that you might not share with everyone, but you can go and say, you know, this, this child has had severe physical trauma, has severe Mm -hmm. neglect and just things that the teachers would want to know. And unfortunately not all teachers are as educated with the foster care system or with the adoption system as maybe you are, um, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt to say that they at least have a general idea, but how, how can we have these conversations? What's the best way to go about it? And what specifically can we ask for? How can, how can they help? So teachers want to partner with families. They want moms and dads, foster parents to come in and, you know, just talk with them and ask questions. And um, I know that a lot of what we are told about children we're not supposed to share, you know, just with everybody, but teachers are, are bound by, um, you know, FERPA free uh, appropriate education for all children. And, you know, a lot of, and part of that is the confidentiality piece. So, you know, I think coming in and and talking with a teacher and sharing as much as, as you're comfortable with about, you know, what kind of trauma your child has endured. I mean, teachers, Sometimes we're not equipped to deal with the trauma that the children come to us with, but we we do know who to reach out to and, and pull in supports for that child in the classroom. So, you know, most schools today have therapists um, that work inside the school that we can help connect kids to. Um, and if we, and if, but if we don't know, you know, that that child has had trauma or that, you know, there's, there's been a problem in their past, then sometimes we don't know how to best support them. Um, you know, communication is a big key when we're dealing with these children with trauma. And so having that open line of communication with your child's teacher or the child's principal, the child's counselor, um, you know, throughout your journey, I think is very important and very crucial thing. Absolutely. So how would you recommend, I mean, just as a hypothetical, and this is not me trying to discriminate against any uh, particular people group, but I mean, just say, mm-hmm. say, our, you know, your child has an older teacher who's maybe used to a more traditional parenting uh, structure. And, you, you know, we all know that that just doesn't, mm-hmm. that can't always exist when we have mm-hmm. these kids from hard places. And, and I know that there's a fear on a lot of parents parts of being judged and just, um, having the teacher think that they're not getting support at home or that they're not getting enough support at home. And I know that there's a lot of fear of just saying like, I promise I'm doing everything I can. I'm sorry that this Mm -hmm. kid keeps, you know, biting their classmates or whatever it is. So how do you suggest having those kind of conversations where 
where a teacher maybe isn't as receptive to, uh, to these things as we would like? Well, I think, you know, you always start with the teacher. And if you don't feel like you're getting the results that you need from the teacher, then it's okay to go up to the chain of command. So um, when I have a parent that has a complaint about a teacher, the very first thing I ask is, well, have you talked to the teacher about your problem? And if they say yes, and I still don't feel like it's being fixed, then as a principal, I will schedule a meeting and I will have the teacher present. The parent will be present. And when appropriate, the kid will be present. And then we all sit down and we, we talk about, you know, what is the issue at hand and what can we do to, to fix the problem? Um, there's always a chain of command in a school system. So if you're not getting the results that you want, um, you know, make sure you just start moving up your chain of command so that, um, you know, we can all do the right things for the kids. Absolutely. Because I think what teachers have got to understand is that um, equal isn't always fair. Okay. Or fair isn't always equal. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. No. And ex- and do you mind explaining what you mean just for the listeners about uh, going to some more depth about that? That fair not always being equal. Yeah. Um, I always I talk to teachers about this. Um, you know, some children need glasses in order to see, um, you know, to be able to read. Not every child is going to need glasses, but every child needs to be able to see to read. And so sometimes we need to put things in place for children to help support them than all of the other children are going to need, but they need those supports in order to access what's going on in the classroom. So fair is not always equal. Yeah, no, I love that description. I think that mm-hmm. that's something that everyone needs to uh, remember in our very justice minded society. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, that's, that's great. That just that hearing that, um, that your educators, educators are always on our side. I think that, like I said, there's that intimidation piece and I wish that that weren't the case, but as adoptive mm-hmm. and foster parents, oftentimes we are intimidated or we are embarrassed Absolutely. or we are just afraid of how our issues are going to be received or how our parenting style mm-hmm. is going to look because we're all just learning. You know what I mean? I'm sure. Absolutely. That- yeah. Um, and, and teachers are learning too, because, you know, we went to school to be educators. We're not mental health specialists. We're not autism experts. We're not, you know, these things. Um, but the beautiful thing about being in education today is, I mean, we, we as educators have a lot of resources. There are a lot of people out there who want to support us. They want to support our kids. And, you know, the click of an internet, we can Google all kinds of things to try to, you know, better inform ourselves. Um, and, and, you know, reaching out to the experts who have that expertise in mental health wellness and asking them, you know, advice on the best ways that we can support the children that are in our care. Absolutely. So just statistics wise, how, how many children, how many children in your school or just maybe like a a ballpark would fit under that umbrella of kids from hard places? And I asked this question because I Mm -hmm. think that a lot of us are so naive to how many children are standing in that gap. Well, um, as I, as I told you in my introduction, you know, my school, um, is a very high poverty school. 98% of my kids do come from poverty and we know that poverty can cause a lot of, um, emotional trauma for children. And, you know, I, I spoke of the two boys that I had in my home for um, several months, and, and that really helped me kind of, I, I've created this term called these glacier kids, because these boys that were in my home uh, talked about the most horrific abuse, and, and I'm saying the worst kind of abuse I've ever had to deal with. 
And that's saying a lot because I've dealt with a lot of kids from hard places. And, and I just remember asking these boys, I said, was there not ever a teacher or a principal that suspected anything was going on? And they said, no. And so I thought, oh my gosh, you're a glacier. I mean, you were sitting in somebody's classroom, probably causing all kinds of havoc and, and problems. And the teachers just seeing the tip of the iceberg, you know, they were just seeing the top of that glacier, what, you know, lied underneath the water for that child was just, you know, so I call it the glacier kids. And, um, and you can also look at it through the terms of, you know, we, sometimes we know who the kids are who have gone through trauma, but a lot of times we don't. And so those kids kind of stay hidden, you know, in, in our classroom. So a lot of our kids, you know, in my school do come from hard places. Um, we have a lot of supports in place to help them when we know that trauma is happening. You know, a lot of domestic abuse, a lot of domestic violence, um, a lot of gang activity where I'm from. Um, drug, we're seeing a definite big spike in drug addiction and drug abuse and um, you know, parents who can't parent children because of their chemical dependency. So, you know, we, we do deal with that a lot in our school. Absolutely. Well, and, and those drugs just in utero have such resounding effects that, are, I mean, mm-hmm. unbelievably, and it's not even, um, it's not even like something that you can accurately study, which is the scary part. You know, we have a right. child that had lots of drugs in his system and we were told like, oh, I mean, jury's still out on how this might affect him. I mean, obviously, exactly. and not not in such casual words, but they're just like, eh, research has shown lots of different things could happen or nothing. And Absolutely. That's a little mm-hmm. discouraging. But, you know, if you have a kindergartner right. that's freaking out, eh, it could be the meth. It could not, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Gosh, as an educator, that's just a whole nother level of stress, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah, but I think what as educators, um, what we have to understand and know is that we don't have to know what's caused their trauma because sometimes, um, you know, us questioning the kid and making them relive that trauma and telling us what happened to them is really not going to change things. What we have to know and be able to do is when they react a certain way, this is how we react. And we need to be reacting in a way where we're not triggering the kids. And I think sometimes unintentionally our reactions to how they're reacting how they're behaving will trigger them. And so really understanding um, and becoming more of a trauma-informed school so that when we do have children who are acting out, who are having behavior problems, we know how to act in turn to, you know, what they're doing in class. Yeah. Then it wasn't until, you know, we got into this adoption thing that I realized how important trauma-informed anyone was. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So incredibly important. And um, For sure. I don't know. I think that it's not, it's not until people like you who are, I mean, you, you meet with other principals, you meet with other educators and you're expressing this importance and that's going to spread and that's going to help adoptive moms and foster parents so, so much in ways Mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, thinking back in the nineties where the stuff was just, you know, you're just kind of thrown to the side. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you for everything that you do. You're welcome. Um, okay. If it's okay with you, do you want to jump into some of these closing questions I have for you? Sure. For sure. Awesome. So, um, and these are questions that I ask everyone. I always alter them a little bit depending on the guest. So what do you wish that someone had just told you, like grabbed you by the shoulders and looked you in the eye and told you at the beginning of this foster journey, but also educator slash foster journey. I know that those, (laughs) those waters get a little murky in your, uh, in your life. Um, So I think my biggest 
I guess was shock was, you know, how hard this was on my youngest biological child. Mm -hmm. You know, my 15 year old is old enough to understand and process and, um, in, you know, she, she's been fine through this whole, or, you know, through this whole journey that we've been on, but my youngest one really has struggled with it. And, um, you know, how hard it was going to be on her and ways, I guess, better ways that I could have supported her, you know, as we've gone through this journey. And, and what I've noticed with her is with every new child that we get in our home, it's getting a little bit easier for her. But I almost felt like, you know, am I traumatizing my own kid to save someone else's? Right. And that was really a hard struggle for us as we were, um, you know, beginning this journey. And then, you know, just as an educator, um, it, it really has just kind of opened my eyes more to what these kids have gone through, you know, especially my boys that I had. Um, I, I just can't even begin to describe you to you the, the kind of abuse that they had endured at, at their father's hands for, you know, their whole life and how these children sat in somebody's classroom every single day and nobody knew what was going on at home. And so that makes me now wonder how many more of those kids are sitting in my classroom than my school. And if they are sitting in my classrooms in my school, how am I supporting them to make them feel safe and nurtured enough that they're, they have the, um, they have the ability to tell someone. Yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, that's absolutely heartbreaking, mm -hmm. but you know, mandated reporter takes on a whole new meeting when you're dealing right. with stuff like this, mm -hmm. um, especially when it's harder to see. So, okay. Um, what is something that you wish you had done differently along this journey? And that can be as deep or as light as you want. It could be like, I wish I had responded to this kid differently, or it could be something deeper. Um, so what would I have done differently? I think, um, I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> we can circle back. <laughs> Just circle back and edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So what is your, what's your favorite way in which your, your tribe supported you through your foster care story? Um, and it could be fellow teachers or just friends and family or something mm -hmm. like that. So um, I have just, um, I've got a fabulous family, um, you know, parents on my side of the family and my husband's side of the family that have supported us through this journey, sisters that have supported us through this journey. But my school family has really, you know, been a huge support to me. Um because fostering is hard and um, sometimes there are tears when you're fostering and, you know, that heartbreak of when a child has to leave sometimes is just, it's so overwhelming. And um, I think that my school family has really stepped up to the plate and, you know, supported me when I needed that support because so many times I have to be the strong one and I have to, um, you know, really support teachers and carry them through some, some tough times. So it's, it was nice to know that it was okay for me to have a meltdown and, and they were there to kind of help pick me up and, you know, support my family yeah. through, through some hard, hard things. You know, I don't think I've ever gotten that answer, but it's so true. You know, something, mm -hmm. a great way, a, a non-tangible way to support your, your friends or your family members that are helping these kids from hard places is just allowing them to be weak. And so I love that answer. Um, mm -hmm. And what do you think is a way that you were maybe hurt or misunderstood and not supported through this? 
Um, probably with my first child. Um, he, he was, he was the one that I think surprised me the most because he was my most difficult child that we've had in foster care and they've all been difficult, but for different reasons But I really feel like, um, you know, trying to, to plug into him and, and find, you know, ways to support him and communication wasn't always good between, you know, DHS and nobody really ever knew what was happening with visits. And, and sometimes I felt like, um, you know, I told you, we kind of co-fostered this family of children and, Sometimes our concerns fell on deaf ears because really what we felt like this family needed is they needed somebody taking care of the parents so then they could take care of the kids. And I think the haste in all of it and how it happened was was really kind of frustrating for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. I I can only imagine. So, um, okay, so what is your biggest piece of advice or encouragement for adoptive families? And I'm going to spin this a little bit for you. So what's your biggest piece of advice or encouragement for adoptive families that have these kids that they just kind of don't know what to do with? They're like, you clearly, you know, are not functioning at the same level as your peers, or Mm -hmm. you clearly are not doing great on your test, you know, and they have no idea how to help. So other than just immediately scheduling an appointment with you or whatever, but (laughs) how do do you think that they can be there for this child? Well, um, I think, you know, obviously making sure that child feels safe in the home and, but, but I know you said without scheduling a meeting with you, but they do need to be scheduling a meeting with us because the, the sooner that we can partner up and we can work together, the sooner that, that this child's going to we're going to have a support network surrounding the child. So really consider the people in your child's school, part of, of your posse, part of that team that's going to be able to wrap around that child and help support them. So don't ever be afraid to go into a school and um, schedule a meeting and talk to, you know, people so that we can, you know, best support. And, and I, and I'm just thinking of a a new child that we got not in foster care at all, but um, her parents day one came in, sat down in my office and, expressed to me their concerns about their child. And it was such a relief to already know that about her coming in because even before she stepped foot into a classroom, we had a plan in place to help her be successful. And the teacher knew, you know, about this child. So we we knew what her triggers were and we knew what um, things seemed to work for her. So it was really actually a breath of fresh air to have a parent come in and say, hey, this is my kid. Um, And we know families love their kids and they don't you know, moms and dads don't sit around and say, okay, I'm going to send you the worst kid I got. Moms and dads send us the best that they have when we work with them. And there, there should ever not ever be any shame in that. Um, you know, parents send us, send us the best they got and, and, and we're going to work with them and support them and, and make a plan to help that child be successful. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's so incredibly encouraging. So, um, thank you so much, Melissa. And I usually ask, I know that you're an educator, so it's a little bit, you know, with privacy, it's a little bit trickier, but I usually always ask people where they can, you know, find you on social media or where they can reach out to you if they have follow-up questions about your interview. Um, are you on Facebook or Instagram or anything? I am on Facebook. It's Melissa Calvert-Fink. You can private message me. And if we need to have a private chat, I'll give you my cell phone number. You can call me anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for this interview. This has been wonderful and totally educating. So I appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I know this stuff is hard and I hope you found encouragement here. Remember, you are enough and you're doing a great job. God wants to be at the center of this journey and he is big enough to redeem all of our mistakes. Don't forget to check out show notes and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks again for listening.